This is episode 155 with former trail runner of the year, published author, running coach, and one of the nicest people on the planet, Mr. David Roche. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. My name is Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm your host. Because we have a lot of new listeners, I want to make sure you know who I am. I'm also the head coach of Strength Running, my award-winning site for endurance runners. And a few years ago, when I was running a bit more competitively, I ran a 239 marathon. I won a Warrior Dash obstacle course race. But what I might be most proud of is competing at the collegiate level at Connecticut College. You might have seen my work in the Washington Post, Runner's World, Health Magazine, or elsewhere. The most important thing to know is that if you're listening, that means you're a runner who wants to improve. And that is what we're going to do. The goal of this show is to give you the training ideas, strategies, and resources to accomplish whatever big goal that you might have, from running your first 5K to qualifying for Boston, preventing your next injury, or mastering your mindset. I'll be bringing you the titans in the fitness world, the pro coaches, performance experts, elite runners, sports psychologists, thought leaders, physical therapists, and strength coaches to give you new insights into this wonderful sport. I want you to better understand running, to view knowledge as a competitive advantage, and to always have the tools to take your running to the next level. Because the more you understand the sport, the better decisions you'll make about your training. Don't miss our other 154 episodes, video channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning, or where it all began, strengthrunning.com, where you can find our coaching services, detailed guides on everything from building mental skills to running for beginners to nutrition and fueling for endurance runners. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Gatorade Endurance. With higher electrolyte levels for more demanding training, no artificial sweeteners, and a lighter flavor that doesn't turn your stomach. It's a proven option for endurance runners who want to dial in their training. See all of their fueling options at GatoradeEndurance.com and use code STRENGTH20 for 20% off your order. My guest today is none other than David Roche. David is a two-time USA Track and Field Trail National Champion, the 2014 U.S. Sub-Ultra Trail Runner of the Year, and a member of Nike Trail Elite and Team Cliff Bar. You might have read his work that he publishes regularly on the Trail Runner Magazine website, or perhaps you've read his book, Happy Running. You can hear me talk about that book with David's wife, Megan, in episode 82 of the Strength Running Podcast. David isn't just an incredibly talented trail runner, he's a wonderful writer and a coach who works with a wide variety of athletes. And with his legal background, I think David is able to clearly explain some pretty difficult concepts, which is just why I wanted to have him on the show today. Our topic is the long run. This workout is arguably one of the most important for distance runners, and it's no wonder that runners often say that they're attending service at the church of the Sunday long run. This single run gives us endurance, strength, and speed. I understand why Bill Squires said that the long run puts the tiger in the cat. David and I are going deep on this workout today, talking about how we define it the physiological benefits that occur when you run long, my personal long run mistakes from earlier in my running career, David's rules for how to start inserting quality into your long runs, how your experience and training age affect the types of long runs that you can do, and a lot more. This was such a fun episode to record, and I hope it helps you dial in your long runs. 
Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. David Roche. David, we meet again. Thank you so much for making some time today. We meet again. It sounds foreboding, um, which is exciting. <laughs> I think we're talking about long runs, right? So this is going to be, you know, maybe one of the more foreboding runs on the schedule. So maybe it's topical. I know. I, I think I'm just being dramatic. But yes, we are diving deep into long runs today. I hope you brought some stamina. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I definitely had a little bit of coffee before this because I'm like, man, digging down into a training subject, this is super fun and something that I don't get to do too often on podcasts. So I really appreciate the opportunity. And thanks to you, Jason, and everyone for listening. Well, I'm really excited. And um, the topic itself is one that I do get excited about. You know, I think in investing terms, you might say that I'm long for long runs. I love them. There's virtually nothing I don't like about them. I think more people should be running longer and more frequently. So I just want to be clear where I stand right from the beginning on long runs. I'm very biased, pro-long run uh, type of a coach. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think you know, you'll pretty much see that uniformly across top coaches like you. Um, and I think that there's a big reason for that. We'll get into some of the physiology behind it. But essentially, you know, what long runs mean might vary, but their practical application is pretty universal. And I mean, basically in everything above, you know, the 1500 meters, like even when you're starting to talk about 3k Olympians, long runs become like a preeminent focus in their training programs. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'm super excited to hear what you have to say and um, learn from you in the process too. Right. And I'm very heartened to see a lot of pro runners who even focus on the 1500 and the mile do substantial long runs. I think I was reading an interview with Nick Willis from New Zealand a year or two ago, and he says that, you know, he gets his long run up to about 18 miles when he's training for the mile. And you know, I, I think that's very instructive. That really tells us that the uh, the long run itself is so applicable to the training for so many different types of athletes. So I'm excited to get into this. And uh, David, you recently wrote a piece in Trail Runner Magazine about structuring long runs with some quality running. And that led me to think about the fact that I've never actually done a podcast episode solely devoted to running long. And considering you are such an incredibly accomplished trail runner, you coach a lot of ultra runners, I just thought you'd be a great person to chat with about this very important type of run. So maybe we can start super basic. David, how do you define what a long run is? <laughs> That's a great question. I didn't really think about that before I got on. I think it's kind of like what the Supreme Court says about uh, pornography. I'm not sure what it is, but I know it when I see it. Um, so in, in this context, I, I would say a long run, I like to think that it's when you're starting to get over 90 minutes or two hours where you're starting to think about glycogen depletion, where you can't just go out on, um, you know, the fuel you have in your system, the glycogen you've built up without having some purpose behind it. Um, so even for athletes that might be really low volume, I like to think of that time frame rather than a certain distance. Um, where are you coming at with like the definition element of it? Well, I think it's very relative. And I, I think you're right. That 90 minute to two hour window, you know, at that point, some really interesting physiology starts going on in your body and the adaptations you get from running for that amount of time, you know, start really compounding and, and giving you lots of benefits. Um, you know, at, at the very simplest, I like to say your long run is simply the longest run that you do during the week. Mm -hmm. And even if it's not 90 minutes or two hours, then, you know, that is your long run. 
I think, you know, even if it's much less than that, like let's say your long run is only seven miles and that takes you, let's say 70 minutes, then, well, that's still your long run for the week, but maybe there's some opportunity to increase it. Yeah, I, I love that definition too. I think, you know, essentially whatever feels long to a person is probably their long run within reason. You know, like if you're starting to talk about like an Olympic marathon or someone that is is close to that level, yeah, they could probably go out and bang out 20 miles every day. And it starts to be like, well, that's still a long run, even though it's not um, a huge psychological or physical lift for them. Um, so yeah, I would say like, I love let's go with your definition to start longest run of the week. Um, with the caveat that like for maybe people that are higher, super high volume, we still need to consider long runs, these runs that are starting to crest, especially into the two hour range when very specific physiological adaptations begin to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, And let's talk about some of those adaptations. What kind of physiological benefits do we get when we go out there and we run for a long time? Are certain benefits more pronounced on you know, super long runs, maybe 20 miles or more versus more traditional long runs, we'll say maybe, you know, 10 to 15 miles. That's an amazing question. I think it really drills down into how I view long runs, which is, you know, the sliding scale is that the, a lot of the benefits happen rather early in long runs relative to going as, you know, 20 plus consistently having these outsized benefits. And I think it gets back to, uh, the five main benefits. I'll I'll stick to just a few of them right now. Um, The number one that everyone probably knows and thinks of are the aerobic benefits. So when we're talking about aerobic benefits, we're thinking angiogenesis. So uh, capillaries expanding around working muscles, uh, just oxygen processing via aerobic processes. So with oxygen, Um, and then also small things like enzyme feedback cycles where, um, you know, aerobic activity like that starts to produce enzymes that uh, over time can really get the aerobic system taking leaps and bounds of progress. So those are kind of unique to long runs because you're starting to get a stacked stress of aerobic, uh, a stacked aerobic stress. That's just more than you can ever get in normal training. Um, and so aerobic being the big one, the, the second big one, uh, musculoskeletal and just cut me off, Jason, if you want to hop in, uh, on any of this, because I I'll, uh, I'll just do three to start. Okay. Um, I love this, David. Go for it. Heck yeah. So musculoskeletal here, this is pretty obvious. We're talking about strength and resilience. Strength is defined as like uh, muscle fibers, muscle spindles, but also your bones and how your bones actually adapt to the, the load that they're under. Athletes that consistently do long runs with fuel, will see DEXA scans where you're measuring bone density. And by we, I mean my wife, Megan, who's a doctor and I, um, and their, uh, their Z scores will be higher. So they'll have stronger bones for the most part, as long as they're fueling. Um, and then also, uh, really interesting things like your, your slow twitch, as your slow twitch muscle fibers start to fatigue your type one muscle fibers, you may start to recruit intermediate fibers, like the t- fibers that are used a little bit faster. That might be why Nick Willis, uh, might do those 18 mile long runs. And, and I've, I've seen those runs because I've had some athletes run with him and they're fast too. They're not, they're not slow. And I think you're starting to probably get into really interesting concepts there of what happens when the body starts to reach the limits musculoskeletally. And within that framework for both aerobic and musculoskeletal, you might even be getting into really crazy things like epigenetic expression, that when your body is under this stress, your genetic code actually gets these environmental switches that turn on. Um, Very hard to measure in a lab, but one of those nonlinear response mechanisms that might explain why long runs have outsized benefit, but we really can't identify it in just that one way. Um, 
And then the last one will be real quick. It's just metabolic adaptation. So here we're primarily talking about lipid metabolism, fat burning, as it's classically known. You know, um, when when you go to these long distances, your your burn rate is always going to be faster than your repletion rate unless you're basically walking. Um, and in that state, your body needs will need to get efficient with uh, lipid metabolism, even if you're taking in the max amount of fuel. So that's my three three big reasons. I'd love to hear what you have to say, Jason. Also, um, you know, a- anything else that you think jumps off that? Yeah, I mean, that is a really good overview of some of the, you know, uh, physiological adaptations that you can expect when you start running for a long time. One of the reasons why I love long runs is because it, it does just build a lot of mental resiliency and mental toughness. Oh, yeah. Uh, particularly if you're training for uh, a half marathon or beyond, you know, the long run is, is one of the more specific forms of mental preparation that you're going to have for the race. Cause you're going to be on your feet for, uh, if not a very similar amount of time, you know, even maybe even longer if you're training for a half marathon and practicing that psychological fatigue, I think is really important. Now this is kind of, um, different than psycho, uh, I'm sorry, physiological adaptations that you experience when you go and run long. But I, I think the mental benefit of long runs should be ignored as well. Uh, and then there's also the, uh, the fact that you're, you're going to improve your mechanics or your running form when you practice running. You know, the more you practice running, the better you're going to get at it. And one of the best ways to improve your running form is to run a lot. And I think the long run is a great opportunity to practice running a long time. And over time, that helps your running form become more economical. Uh, you know, muscles learn through practice and your stride will improve through consistent long runs. And so I, I really like to see uh, runners getting to the point where they're actually tired at the end of a long run, because then it requires a little bit more effort, a little bit more mindfulness to practice good technique. And that has some, some great spillover into, you know, your racing performance and just having better form when you're running a normal, easy run or even some workouts. So those are some others. Are are there other more physiological adaptations that uh, are prominent in your mind? So when you're recommending long runs to your athletes that you're like, okay, we're definitely going to be working on this today. Gosh, I love your answer so much. You totally like beat me to the point because I mentioned that I had five things and just said three. The two I didn't mention were uh, neuromuscular, which kind of is a catch-all term that gets to what you were talking about. And, you know, you did much more clearly um, and biomechanical. So uh, <laughs> it's, we're on the same page here. So I, what I think is fascinating is how the, the mental elements, the psychological elements you mentioned, right, where I refer to as neuromuscular feedback into how the body actually adapts over time. Another place where we might start to see nonlinear benefits of long runs that explain why it's an essential part of a training program. So, um, you know, overall, we might call it toughness, but what toughness actually means in an applied setting can mean a lot. It can be a lot of different things. Um, it might simply just be, you know, learned neurological patterns that require putting your hand on the stove sometimes. Um, it, it could be something related to f- methods, um, you know, models of fatigue, things like the central governor theory, um, and, and things like that, but generally endurance as this mental limit, um, as you know, uh, Alex Hutchinson talked about in endure that what's so cool to me is that as you start to redefine those mental limits slightly over time, that your physiology adapts to fit that mental limit. So, um, you know, what the mental limit is and what the physical limit it is 
often end up being the same thing, um, but they don't start in the same place. And I think long runs are one place where you start to equalize those. Um, And as one increases, the other increases and they go in lockstep. Um, So that's my favorite one. And then the biomechanical one that you mentioned, also fascinating. I think that that can also have drawbacks, you know, if, if you start to become, start to slog a little bit. Um, but efficiency under load is a huge thing, especially for, for road marathoners or road half marathoners, um, or honestly, any type of road racing, uh, that becomes like such an important focus. So I think those five things we mentioned kind of cover the general theory on long runs and then how you put into practice. That is where the fun really starts. Yeah, that's, that's the million dollar question. And, and I think, you know, so many runners want to know the magic distance, you know, the minimum or maybe even the maximum distance of long run, depending on the event that they're training for. Um, and so let's dive into this a little bit. Let's talk more about, you know, how long you have runners run, because, you know, you mentioned that part of a long run can be detrimental. There's a drawback to running for such a long time, because as you're as you fatigue, as your form starts to deteriorate, you know, there's a certain amount of time where, you know, some of that is a good thing. You do want to get to that point. It's going to prompt additional adaptations and pushing past that to a certain extent can be a very good thing, but pushing past that for too long can be a bad thing. You can really predispose yourself to injury. So when we think about, you know, what distance is appropriate for various race distances, different events, how do you think about this? Do you use certain ranges of long run distances for various events for the athletes that you coach? Well, first, I love what you said about like injuries. And I mean, I think one framework to look at this, if anyone's ever played, like I remember when I was a kid, I used to play football video games like Madden or something. And, you know, you can turn injuries off. So none of your players ever get injured. Um, And I would love to think about what training is like if you could turn injuries off, not just injuries like stress fractures, but also hormonal issues that you see uh, in athletes that that push too much and things, you know. And I think that if you probably took out all of those downsides and just talked about the benefits, we might be looking at optimal training is always, you know, a ridiculously high volume with a lot of intensity and long long runs. Um, but the reality is that we're always on the precipice of pushing to a place that. Uh, what we're doing is actually self-destructive, even short of injury. So obviously overuse injuries are are relevant there, but um, the hormonal stress of long runs is the one that I really want athletes to focus on, particularly female athletes. Um, As you start to uh, do these events that deplete glycogen, there's all of these recent studies that show that that is the primary determinant of hormonal balance for a lot of people. So it really requires um, not overdoing it. And hopefully keeping your fueling um, in check, though there might be a place for some male athletes to do uh, long runs without fuel. Um, so that gets in, that was a big lawyer-like disclaimer preface for the, the answer that for me, I generally like athletes to do a long run most of the year. Um, and I love to plan by distance so they can have a little bit more fun with their route. Um, and the magic sweet spot for, for athletes, even ones that are doing ultras outside of specific builds for races is usually 14 to 16 miles um, with athletes that might be doing 20 to 30 miles a week, doing 10 to 12, um, you know, scaling it down. But for an athlete that might be 40 to 50, uh, the 14 to 16 range gives them the ability to get a lot of these adaptations without so many of the downsides. Um, and so Jason, like for you, how do you think about it? Do you, do you think in time and distance or distance, or do you have specific ranges that you look at? 
I typically will think about long runs as distances rather than as, you know, certain amounts of time. Although, you know, both can be used very well. You know, I'm not I'm not super ideological about either. Uh, but just, you know, most of the time when I'll write a training plan for an athlete, I'll typically use distances. Um, just because I think, you know, we race distances and, you know, we, we don't run for time. We run a certain distance for a time. And so I think about running as a, uh, a distance sport. And so that's why I, I tend to use distance. Um, and and I, I really like this idea of, you know, let's very consistently do a moderate long run without necessarily going into the 20 plus mile, you know, ranges where, you know, our form is going to start to break down. We're really going to run up to our fueling limits. And so that 14 to 16 mile limit for most runners, I think is great because, you know, you're getting almost all of the benefits of a long run without, you know, some of the more harsher drawbacks of long runs. So I, I think that's a fair compromise. And um, I, I appreciate that the lawyerly intro, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, when we think about this, I, I think it's really helpful to think about you know, what you get from a long run versus what you risk from a long run as a spectrum. And if we can stay kind of in the middle of that, of that spectrum and, and not go to the extremes of, you know, doing a 25 mile long run every weekend or not doing a long run at all, then finding some common ground in the middle is, is probably the more productive approach, I think. Yeah. And I, I, you know, across athletes, especially, you know, at first I might not have understood this fully. Like, you know, when you, when you read about training philosophy, um, it's really hard to understand until you start coaching. Like, you know, Jason, you see this, every coach sees this, that you, you start to learn as applied, uh, the theories that we're talking, that we've talked about so far, um, like what they would dictate varies perhaps from what you see in practice. Um, and what I've seen in practice over and over again is that, um, you know, the presence of long runs in, in within that 14 to 16 range or shorter or a little bit longer. Um, there's a lot of variation that we'll get into, but, um, you know, training shorter than perhaps you race, there's a reason that it can be awfully successful. It's because we're not going, uh, you know, your body doesn't need to train if you're a marathoner for mile 25, your body needs to get the adaptations to perform at mile 25. And you can get all of those without going 25 miles. Um, and you know, the extreme of that might be for racers that are competing at the top level in hundred mile races. Like, you know, I found that they don't really need to go farther than 50 K in training. Um, and they can win some of the biggest races in the world. And so the way that, uh, I like athletes to think about it is in a stress-based framework. Um, we're not looking to mimic the exact stress of race day. We're looking to get the adaptations that prepare us for the stresses of race day or whatever our performance goals are. Um, so with that in mind, like, um, I like athletes to finish long runs. Yes. You want to be a little bit tired. Um, but you don't want to be like, taken off the pavement with a spatula. Right. Um, and I think a lot of the times runners tend to think that, okay, the long run needs to feel exhausting. Um, and there might be a time and place for that, particularly as you're first adapting or as you're doing very specific workouts for long run workouts for races or events. But in between, I like the long run to be this uplifting moment that not only adds, uh, the physical adaptations, but the mental ones, the, the confidence and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the magic is then how do, how do we apply that to athletes? And I mean, I'd love to hear what you have to, to say about, you know, what you've seen and how I can, you know, I love learning from you. Well, thanks, David. And you're making me think I was doing long runs all wrong after I graduated college. And uh, in hindsight, what did you do after college? 
Oh, uh, they were both long, like 18 plus, and mm-hmm. they had a lot of intensity in them. Uh, I got into this phase where, you know, I just, I'd run 15 miles to the track and then I would do, you know, something like three times a mile or something like that. And I would end up running, you know, 5k or 10k pace, which after that amount of mileage on your legs and, and running that pace for a mile was, was just brutal, very, very intense. And, uh, I, I don't think I'll do that again. Uh, I don't really assign workouts like that anymore because they are so intense and running so fast uh, at the end of such a long run. You know, then we get into some of the the form breakdown issues and and even some of the metabolic issues that we talked about before. So, um, you know, the way I kind of think about the long run uh, progression is that um, and, and also the intensity within a long run is that, you know, we should be mostly consistent with our long runs. And, and I love how you were saying, you know, the long run is, is pretty much something we do all year long. Um, but we have to reserve those times where, okay, we are going to do a slightly longer long run, or we're going to add a fair amount of intensity to this long run. You know, those have to be judiciously used and assigned. Uh, and, and I think if you are just doing them too frequently, you're really running into the the kind of metabolic problems of doing these kinds of long runs. And David, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that because I, I think your expertise in this area uh, eclipses mine. What are some of the metabolic drawbacks to you know having those long runs where you know you need to be pulled off the sidewalk with a spatula? <laughs> well, there's a few things that that jump to mind. The first, I, I mentioned them briefly, but there's some fascinating recent science that confirms like a lot of the theory that's been around forever uh, that within day deficits, so within day glycogen deficits, independent of uh, total day uh, caloric intake is what leads to things like hormonal disturbances, cortisol rises in cortisol, also less adaptation and things like that. And so when you're talking about these long runs, you're talking about this major glycogen stress. And if in that, within that glycogen stress, you're adding an extra amount of intensity. So these, these pulses of cortisol, um, then it can be a really big thing for your body to bounce back up from. If that becomes a consistent issue, often you'll see athletes. I mean, we get to see tons of, uh, blood work from athletes via inside tracker and Megan's research. And, you know, what we'll see is like, this athlete that might've had great training on paper has a war zone when you start to look at their blood work, um, even though they're still performing. And so the problem is that blood work has a long tail and, um, you know, that long tail will start to really hit performance even while they're, they're doing well in training. Um, the second is that the adaptations that we're looking for in running are not related necessarily to being able to push on tired legs or anything like that. So what we really want to emphasize with athletes is like the goal is to make faster running take less energy. So if you've ever heard the term running economy for people listening, that all that means is using less energy to go the same pace, usually submaximal paces. Like if you're going seven minute pace, uh, you know, you're burning at a lower rate, which is the definition of speed. That's why someone like Galen Rock can look like they're floating at 430 pace. Um, but to make faster paces, take less energy, doing them on really tired legs or or when you're really tired, that actually makes them take more energy and more effort. So that has a really good place in, in small doses, primarily for the toughness neuromuscular elements we were talking about. Maybe if you're training for a marathon specifically, but short of that, if running feels hard, 
it doesn't lead to faster running over time. It might do it short term, but long term, we really want to emphasize those positive feedback cycles with, you know, feeling good, which feeling good then directly um, correlates with the biomarkers in your blood, also how the muscles are responding. And then the really interesting stuff where a lot of Megan's research is now is in how your genetic code, your specific genetic programming responds. Um, and essentially you put it all together and long runs are great as long as you're not getting better at going harder because getting better at going harder hits a cap. And then eventually you just run straight into a ceiling and you get a concussion. Um, so yeah, I mean, all that's to say that the magic of long runs, um, I think is in this, this overarching pulse in the background, like you were talking about year round pretty much outside of like rest breaks with then bigger super compensation stimuli, um, either every you know, periodically every few weeks or month. Um, and then before races, you might even put them in more often, but controlling it otherwise. Yeah. I think that element of control is really important. Um, and we have been talking a fair amount of adding intensity into a long run in some format. How do you, uh, and, and I, you partially answered this question because you said, you know, maybe we do it every couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, this is certainly not something that someone who started running last week is going to going to be doing. But, you know, I think when we start adding intensity, now this is when long runs can start becoming just as complex as the faster training sessions, the workouts that we're doing. So do you have rules for when and how to add intensity to long runs? And does it depend on the race that you're training for? Does it depend on your training age, you know, your experience? How do you think about that? Amazing question. Yeah, I think that I actually like to add intensity into long runs pretty early because the one good thing about keeping them slightly shorter is that you can maximize these stimuli with a little bit less overall, perhaps stress um, when you're talking about the glycogen depletion stress, because it takes a little less time if you add a little bit more intensity or you don't have to go as far to get a similar adaptation stimulus. Um, so essentially as athletes build up their distance, like if they can't run a certain distance, we don't want to add intensity yet because then we'll just shorten it even more. Um, but that build up process probably doesn't take too long. You can slow down as much as you want. We call them feel good finish long runs where everything is structured around finishing, feeling good. You, you go as slow as you need to, you fuel, you do all this. As soon as those feel good finish long runs, you actually do feel good once you're finishing you can start adding an intensity even pretty early in base cycles of training. Um, you know, you'll see that in classic Lydiard systems or, you know, all the way up through Canova based systems today. Um, so I, I think the best intro, uh, type long run workout and Jason, I imagine you give something similar are, you know, surges or fart like portions within a long run. Um, what, what Megan, my wife and co-coach loves the most are, um, like 45 seconds to a minute, moderate, every five minutes or a mile, depending on the person, if they're, if they're have distance on their watch or if they're just going by time. And the idea being that in those portions, you're keeping it aerobic. You're not going anaerobic. You don't want to start exceeding lactate threshold, um, and reducing some of those enzyme feedback cycles we were talking about before, but you can start to inject these, these, uh, pace elements that, uh, increase the aerobic stimulus without like reversing some of the aerobic and metabolic benefits. So, um, you know, what we love is, one minute faster every five minutes. And with that one minute faster, you're thinking 10K or easier with this really relaxed effort. And you might notice that you start to feel a little bit better actually in some of those long runs because you're not slogging as much. You're getting a little bit less of that of the biomechanical um, 
you know, repetitive motion issues that especially people that might have a little bit more fast twitch background have issues with. So that's where we like to start is these fartleks. Um, Where do you like to start? I'd love to hear like how you bring athletes into a little bit more intensity. And then we can go into like, you know, the more complicated workouts. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where I start right there is with with some fartleks. And uh, I think, you know, 45 seconds to a minute is a great place to start. It's not overly uh, demanding from a time perspective, you know, you're not doing a five minute repetition and you're certainly getting full recovery. I mean, this isn't, you know, a, a quote unquote hard breathing workout where you need to give yourself short recovery and, and really challenge yourself in that kind of a way. Um, I, I'm really partial to fast finish runs. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on how fast you're finishing and the distance of the long run. Of course, I, I really try to avoid finishing too fast, especially for runners who haven't done a lot of higher mileage long runs because you know you now we're starting to get into you know you can easily turn this kind of a run into a uh, a feel bad finish run where <laughs> you don't feel good at all at the end of the run so you know there has to be that balance there um, but David when you put in those forty five second to one minute surges every say five minutes or a mile um, uh, two questions for you uh, one more of an observation I think it's very counterintuitive for a lot of runners to to do anything fast in their long run. And something like a 45 second pickup every mile seems almost too easy, you know, like like wh- where's the the trick here David? Like what's <laughs> what is the workout here? Because it almost seems kind of simple, kind of easy. What are the uh what are the benefits to doing something like 45 seconds to a minute of a surge or a pickup every mile or so? You know, it, it's obviously not really aerobic. What are we getting from that? Well, I think it really gets back to how the body adapts. And this is probably the hardest thing for runners to, to really understand at first is that adaptation is a stress-based system that is heavily reliant on hormonal context. Um, so within that context, pushing really hard or going faster on a workout does not mean it's a better workout. Often it means it's a far worse workout for adaptations, not just aerobic ones, because obviously we've all heard that going anaerobic training like a CrossFit person is perhaps not great for your endurance, but even short of that, doing, um, maximizing your ability on any run, like ending your, even your track workout with the fastest possible pace you could on that particular set of intervals usually leads to a hormonal context that reduces subsequent adaptation. And that's why when we're talking about long-term adaptation cycles, the people that really slay it are those that, uh, one, the my favorite ones, the ones that control their workouts, focus on strides so that their fast running is actually easy, and this aerobic element. Um, the other element of that, the other group, are genetic freaks. Um, and the problem is that a lot of people look at the genetic freaks, often of you know, who are, are the pro runners, many of whom, you know, we coach a lot of these people too. And we're like, well, their approaches might be work for me, but interpolating from those outliers usually leads to people that, uh, aren't outliers to run straight into a ditch. Um, and that really gets back, not even if you're able to avoid injury, that you'll be in this, um, overall stress context that isn't optimal for adaptation. So when we're talking about this long run in particular in surges, um, if you're doing these controlled efforts, when you're doing that either 10K effort or, or hour, you know, lactic threshold effort or whatever it is, um, while you're doing that, it'll take less overall energy. You'll be doing less, there'll be less pulses of cortisol and stress into your body, less hormonal disturbance for 
the output, the musculoskeletal output that is like your optimal at the moment. And once you can start doing that, that faster running becoming literally easier on at a cellular level, that's when you start to get the feedback cycles where faster running gets easier overall. Um, so, you know, to, to zoom back when we're talking about either slogging or going out and doing your long run moderately the whole time, essentially, you know, we, un- we all understand intuitively that slogging only makes you faster to a point. Um, and once those aerobic low hanging fruit are, are you grab those, it perhaps won't. Um, but moderate running, the problem is you're going to create this cellular context that then makes you adapt less in the future. Um, so that's all a long way of saying that, um, you know, overtraining doesn't just mean that like you're not sleeping at night and you have all these issues or you have sexual drive issues or anything like that. Overtraining can also be, you're just training a little bit too hard for where you are in the moment. Um, and that's why, like, if you really start to dig down into some of the most optimal training approaches, they don't look all that hard. They're hard at the end. They're hard in very specific bursts. But right now, when we're talking about like a general overarching framework, especially in these long off seasons that many of us are in right now, like you want to be in a constant feel good state, or at least within a day or two of a feel good state. Because once you start doing that, you get these like cycles going where, you know, what you can be in three months, let alone a year are, you know, leaps and bounds over where you are now. Yeah, it, it can be so hard for runners. I don't know if it's just our mental makeup and, and how sometimes we relate to training, but it can be very hard for us to understand that if something isn't very challenging, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not very beneficial. And something that's fairly easy can still be very helpful for us as athletes. Oh yeah, that's why, you know, there's all these stories of like college runners in particular, which might be the the number one population where this is the biggest issue. Like you'll be like, oh, I didn't do much speed work before this race, you know, early season race and had my breakthrough. It's like, well, you were actually probably just training correctly for, you know, rather than drilling yourself and doing races on every workout or races on every long run, or God forbid races on every easy run, which, you know, it, those that have been exposed to college running knows, know that a lot of teams you know, do these progression easy runs that end up turning people into mush over time, other than the freakish adapters who could adapt to almost anything. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it really gets back to like cycling. If we were talking about cycling or swimming, it would look a lot different. Um, but running is a highly biomechanical efficiency based sport. Um, and biomechanical efficiency, unlike like in the, on the bike, your bike is always going to be putting out the same amount of power. So there are some issues involved, but not as many. Um, in, in running, you are the machine. And so if that machine isn't operating efficiently, revving the gas pedal as hard as you can, you're just like going to cause the car to burst into flames. Um, and so, yeah, like the, the more efficient stimuli period, with periodic pulses of very hard, intense things that the body then has peri- longer periods to re- adapt to. And that's generally what creates these long-term growth cycles where athletes don't need to take six weeks off just to feel human again. And this seems a lot more manageable and and easier to to actually execute than some brutally challenging training program where, you know, you're going to the well twice a week and your long runs go up mile or two every single week. It seems like we can be a little bit kinder to ourselves and not you know, hammer ourselves constantly. And, and I think whenever we can develop or implement some more effective training that it is on the one hand more effective, but on the other hand has a less risk of injury. 
I think that is, is a win-win. Um, now, with that said, let's talk about some of those complex long runs, those really hard long runs. What are some of your favorite workouts to do within a long run that are really challenging and difficult? Awesome. Now we're getting to the big, sexy stuff. Um, so the, the very first, the simplest, um, is to incorporate tempo at the start, you know, after a warm up with in a long run. Um, so, you know, we like to place them near the start because that's the time when athletes will have the context to use the least amount of energy to go the fastest pace, or if they're on trails, have the most efficient output. Um, so by tempo, you know, that can mean a lot of different things, but generally we're talking about lactate thresholds. So still under control and um, 20 to 30 minutes, or you can split it up in, you know, alternator miles where, you know, one mile might be around tempo, one mile at a steadier effort, um, or, you know, any, any like framework that you really want, where you're starting to look at 20 to 40 minutes of, um, quality running. That's not all out followed by, you know, finishing your long run out. And you can, even if you want to get really advanced, incorporate fartlek after the tempo. Um, but the idea being that once you do that tempo at first, um, you're introducing a major stimulus, uh, for, you know, your speed, your power, um, your aerobic system, musculoskeletal system, but perhaps most importantly, you cause this big, uh, glycogen depletion stimulus. Um, so talking about that a lot right now, but what that means in practice is that your body's like knocks down the fuel gauges way more quickly than it would otherwise. Um, and then if after that, your body has to recover on the fly, as you finish this long run, you're starting to get a double whammy of adaptations. One, there are studies that say that in a glycogen, slightly glycogen depleted state adaptation markers increase. So as long as you're able to control stress that helps. So, you know, if you're doing tempo, you're working on your speed, you're increasing those adaptation markers. Two, your body has to, uh, you know, get your glycogen back to steady levels on the fly while you're still running. Um, and that can have pretty magical benefits for marathoners in particular, but um, anyone on trails too. So um, tempo or tempo intervals followed by fart-like intervals, and you can create like any any number of things from that. But that is perhaps my my favorite to do year round when athletes aren't training specifically for a race. Um, I like that. Yeah. And this was the, uh, subject of the article that you wrote on a trail runner magazine that was talking about, you know, doing some sort of, uh, steady or tempo effort early in the, the long run. And, and I like your explanation of that. And it's kind of similar to some things that I did, uh, at the tail end of my college career. And then post collegiately where I would run, a a, a, a short race, you know, maybe 5k, maybe 10k, but then my, lo- my cool down would be fairly long. And so I might get in what would be the equivalent of a long run distance on say a Saturday, but you know, I did, I did the race early and then I had a really long cool down, even though that is obviously much harder and faster than a tempo. Are the benefits to something like that similar, or was I just training too hard? Oh, totally similar. Um, you know, especially you, when you start talking about race context, now you're really getting into fascinating things about like how super compensation stimuli might interact with like aerobic development, whether that's like, I mean, I've heard crazy theories like adult stem cell activity being enhanced, but, or epigenetic theories or whatever. But, um, essentially when you introduce these stimuli and then, you know, the body keeps going on them, you actually make these efforts play longer, you know, because again, cellularly, 
our muscle, like our cells have no idea how far we're running, right? They only understand the stress context. So by introducing these stresses, you might've, let's say you did 16 or 18 miles that day. Perhaps your body will adapt much in the way it would for a 24 mile easy run or whatever. Um, and once you start to do that, you can really find some magical adaptations that you might not find if you're just, you know, repeating the same type of just go out and run your long run long every week. Um, so, I mean, I really love athletes to, to mix it up, to have fun with it. If they're, if they're, you know, if they live in a hilly area, maybe you're running uphill moderately, like in an unstructured manner early in your long run and doing that. But I think the overarching thing that I want athletes to focus on if they're listening to this is all of this requires, um, fueling during the long run. Um, so I, we might, I'm not sure if it's interesting to you or your listeners, we might get into why that is, but, um, essentially like in, if we're training depletion, um, it almost always leads to worse outcomes long-term when you're talking about these biomarker stress-based theories for adaptation. So, um, you know, your body is going to be burning 600 to a thousand calories per hour, whatever the number is for you specifically. And you can only replace a couple hundred to a few hundred of those. So, you know, try to limit the deficit as much as you can, because the best fat adaptation is not hacking your system through keto or whatever. The best fat adaptation is being really, really fast. Um, so, you know, if you're able to control that stress, you'll be able to get faster. I love that. Um, I, I want to flip this question on you too, because I, I, and, and I'm, I'm using myself in as, as an example, because I, I wouldn't always give my athletes these workouts because they were just very hard. And, and I was just kind of a little bit out of my mind when I was 24 years old, <laughs> but while I sometimes ran a race and then cool down for say 12, 13 miles, other times I would warm up 13 miles and then say run a 5k. Now I know that I wasn't going to be running very fast, but it was kind of like a big workout. Is, is this again, a very similar type of, of stress? Because what is the difference between doing the harder effort uh, early in the long run and then doing it this way, where you basically have the really long warm up? then you run the race. And then afterwards, you know, maybe just run a mile or two super easy to cool down. You are tough as nails. Oh my gosh. Um, Crazy, isn't it? It's amazing. I mean, you'll see some of that. My general thinking gets back to the adaptations we're looking for. So I think sometimes it's easy to think of running as this purely aerobic event, you know, um, that your lungs with a pair of legs type thing. Um, But Running at its core is a series of small jumps, right? So the musculoskeletal output is what determines like your efficiency, your economy, all of these things that matter. Um, so, you know, if you're doing these efforts, like let's say the 12 to 13 miles, what does that do? Musculoskeletally, you know, one that'll deplete glycogen a little bit, but not too much if you're fueling, especially, um, it causes some muscle fatigue. So like if you did then a you know, like a concentric exercise to test max muscle power, I'm sure it would be down 20 to 30%, even if you're a fit, um, you know, young athlete. Um, and you know, once you start thinking about that, okay, my max muscle power is down. So my steady state will also probably be slightly down and let alone VO2 max or things like that. So, you know, by doing that, by doing workouts on tired legs, the benefits are, okay, well, maybe we're getting these aerobic adaptations, these neuromuscular adaptations that are greater than the sum of their parts, right? Like you're creating this context that creates this extra special stimulus that you adapt to. Um, but 
if we're starting to think about those small little jumps, you're training slightly less efficient, small little jumps to get back to like a, a crude way of looking at musculoskeletal adaptations. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want athletes to do that too often. Like I want the fast running that they do to be as efficient as possible. Um, because once you start to create those like efficiency feedback cycles, running itself can get easier at all things, right. At, at all, at all levels of exertion. Um, so my guess it's for workouts like that, like I, there is a time and a place. I'm sure that there are adaptations that are totally nonlinear from expectations, but if someone's running a 5k at whatever pace, um, and their heart rate is elevated relative to what they, it probably should be, um, for that same pace, that will probably not lead to the most amazing places long-term if it's a consistent stimulus, right? Like if it's something that they do often, um, I think it's really hard. So it feels like it works. Um, but really hard has limits because you can only push yourself so hard. Meanwhile, I think you can get faster and faster at the same amount of effort. Thank you for that. I think that was a good explanation of maybe working too hard and those kinds of efforts need to be few and far between. And I mean, let me be clear. I I was doing those very rarely because I I don't really prefer running a race (laughs) after a 13 mile warm up. It's not. (laughs) Fun. You don't run very fast, uh, and halfway through, you're just so ready to be done. Um, now, David, I do want to ask you about uh, runners' training ages or the amount of experience they have with running. So, if you have two years of experience, we say your training age is two. Now, some of the long runs that we've talked about, even if the whole long run is at an easy effort, but let's say it's twenty miles, how does training age factor into the type of long run? Whether that's a long run with quality or simply a longer long run. Uh, how does that factor into your idea of what is appropriate for a runner to actually do on the weekend for their long run? Yeah, most that's so key. And I, I basically think that it's probably what, you know, you'd assume or any listener would assume that, you know, for an athlete that maybe has a little less experience and we're talking about a stress-based framework, You don't want to push that stress too close to the edge or take big leaps in stress. Um, So for for us, it's like, you know, for athletes that are um, perhaps not doing extremely high volume or are young training or lower training ages, like we try to make sure, look, it's better to go 30 seconds slower per mile or whatever than to push to that edge and like be left get, you know, with the spatula on the pavement. Um, because like, again, in a vacuum, maybe we would push more, but when you start to think about injury and overtraining and reduced running economy, it's like, it's better just not to take the risks because what most athletes will progress to their peak, as long as you control two elements, one aerobic stimulus. So, you know, the, the easy running we're talking about, just running as much as you can consistently cross training, all the good stuff that we're talking about two is speed and power. Um, that is strides. Uh, I know Jason does a lot of great strength work that I'll even share with that. We share it with a lot of our athletes. Um, those elements, that efficiency of movement of, of fast movement. Um, if you control those two elements and get a positive feedback cycle going, everything else kind of works out. That's like the athletes that race well early season. It's because they're fast and they have good endurance. Um, so when you're talking about like athletes that are starting out, it's like, yes, long run should probably be focused a little bit more on endurance, like, and, and control that one element. And that can be your focus with the long run is go out, finish the distance, keep it easy, fuel, finish feeling pretty good. Um, and if you're introducing workouts, introduce very light stimuli that you're sure you can adapt to. 
Um, once you're sure, you can start to step it up. But until that point, like it's not worth the risk because like if we're talking about whether we want 100% fitness or 90% fitness, I always want 90% fitness because 90% fitness now will be 150% in the future if we just keep the positive feedback cycles going. But 100% almost always drops back down to like 10 or 20% eventually. Um, so, you know, I, I would emphasize to everyone, like, think about a controlled, like 80 to 90%, whatever that means for you, like 80, 90% of what you would feel comfortable pushing yourself toward. And that's probably the sweet spot for adaptation. Yeah. And when it comes to any kind of intensity or quality, the earlier example you used of a 45 to 60 second stride or pickup every five minutes or a mile during your long run, I think that is one of those great types of long runs that could be used with a beginner runner or, or even a more advanced runner who just doesn't want to just run easy all the time. They want to open up their range of motion and feel a little better. So I think that's yeah. a good example in this case. Or, you know, if you're in a hilly place, you can even let the terrain dictate these efforts for you slightly where, you know, you just kind of have fun on uphills or, or whatever, you know, you can, it doesn't have to necessarily be super structured, um, to, to get the same adaptations. Um, and you know, one thing we haven't talked about is like steady running where you're starting to talk about things that marathon to 50 K effort, couple hour effort. Like if you were, were doing a race, not just these harder tempos. And that really is a time and place too. You can do, you know, steady running within long runs. You can do a whole long run of steady running if it's shorter and you're really fit. Um, you know, that as long as you're not like the, the main thing to avoid, like the big stop sign is a long run. That's just kind of fast the whole time, but not as fast as you might race and not slow enough that you can't recover from it and adapt to it well. So, you know, I, like, I, I don't want to use any examples, but essentially, um, those long runs that might look impressive on Strava, but are probably like the least impressive to like the cellular level context of adaptation. Yeah. That's a good example of just running hard for the sake of running hard. Now, what about those pro runners who go out and will run 16, 18 miles at six minute mile pace? Now, of course, six minute mile pace is not very challenging for them, but I, I would consider this an example of steady running. Is this just a case that because they are genetic freaks, they have won the genetic lottery, they can do things that most mere mortals simply can't, and it's okay for these kinds of runners? Most of the time, that's still really smart training. So, um, you know, let, let's say if we're talking about male athletes in particular, if they're racing a marathon around five minute pace to 515 pace, um, six minute pace for them, they're probably below aerobic threshold, you know? So it, it's totally like, you know, we have some, some really fast men on the team and for them that, that isn't too stressful. Um, particularly if they're a little bit younger, you know, as athletes start to age, even pro athletes into their, you know, later on, you often see the like kind of moderate paces gets easier and their fast paces might stay the same. It's like the Toby Keith line. I ain't as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. Um, <laughs> You start to see that a little bit, but like, so in general, that's okay. What really horrifies me is like the, the runners that might not be pros, but have the same stats as a pro pro runner would on their long runs. Right. So like the runner that's running six minute pace on their long run, but whose marathon pace might be five fifty or so, or something like that. Um, because there's a time and a place for like a Hanson simulator, a 16 mile effort, a 26.2 K effort at your marathon effort. That's like the hardest workout imaginable. So if you're starting to talk about, okay, your marathon pace plus a few seconds with as like a long run pace average, which you'll often see, um, it's like, 
that is basically the hardest workout you'll ever see a professional do. And there's a reason for that. Um, so I like, you know, I, I mean, I think it's hard because professional runners are often so good, um, and so fast and so gifted that, um, what their controlled great training looks like almost seems like it's a broken, like a cheat code in a video game. Um, so I think the key for, for all of us is to just understand that, you know, most of the time, the, the hardest workouts sh- or even the hardest workouts shouldn't be that impressive on GPS. Um, maybe the, the sections in there that are, are real hard should be, but overall, the overall pace probably shouldn't be. Yeah, that's a good point. Strava is, is not usually a thing that you want to emulate when you're looking at workouts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, David, we haven't talked about fueling and I know that's kind of a whole separate, you know, we could probably do a whole podcast just on fueling and why it's so important and and how to do it. But you have mentioned several times that fueling is very critical. And you've also said that it's particularly important for female runners. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit more about why we want to fuel on our long runs. And if you recommend fueling on every long run that we do, and why it's more important for women. Uh, amazing. And I think that, you know, if, if people listening take nothing away from any of the drivel I have spewed on this, it's pay attention to fueling your long runs. Uh, it's so tempting because you look, a fit athlete probably would never need to need to fuel their long runs. Absolutely need to. They could do their long runs without fuel, but it causes perhaps in some cases massive uh, negative uh, feedback cycles from the cellular level to the systems level on up. Um, so essentially when we're talking about overtraining syndrome, I bet almost every one of those runners, it's a, it's a failure in fueling rather than a failure just in training. Um, so basically I'll start with like the general idea of what happens. Um, so, you know, your burn rate when you're running is pretty high. Um, your body can only refuel a part of that burn rate, burn rate, even if you're fueling. So if you fail to fuel, you're going into these massive deficits, All the studies on these deficits show what we kind of understand intuitively, that it causes like hormonal feedback cycles, um, basically that impact everything from hemoglobin to vitamin D to, you know, your sex hormones, your sex drive, things like that. Um, And that can be for a number of reasons. Um, Maybe the, the simplest one would be to think about catabolic processes where your body in the absence of fuel might start to break down some muscle. Um, And that's kind of, you know, you'll hear about some of these athletes that do, you know, fat adapted races and they'll lose like five to eight pounds of muscle after the event. Um, so your body's breaking down muscle. And, you know, we might see that at a smaller level in a, in a normal long run, where it's just like a little bit. Um, but that causes these negative feedback, can cause these negative feedback cycles. So what, it's especially bad for women because the hormonal seesaw is so much more delicate. Um, all the studies that fe- looked at um, menstrual disturbances found that essentially the within day deficit problem is one of the big drivers. And the crazy thing is that you can't tell by looking at someone. And that's maybe the hardest thing to learn because as you fuel these long runs, your base, your metabolic rate actually increases, you know, the fire is hot and things are burning rather than the fire going dull and things not burning. And so, you know, as that fire starts to peter out, often that correlates with uh, in, in women, you know, there's the, the menstrual cycle issue that's really huge. Um, in men, though, it's the similar that you'll see testosterone levels drop through the floor. Um, and, and that's obviously huge for adaptation. And so, um, you know, it matters for everyone. The, the caveat there is that running easy without fuel could increase 
your rates of lipid metabolism and adaptation in some athletes, um, in, in small doses in particular. The pro- for for women, you know, the menstrual cycle makes it that I don't think there's any context where that is wise or, or given unless they're doing constant physiological testing um, with a doctor. For men, the the time and place might be if they're extremely fit, they're um, really good at fueling the rest of the time, and they're going b- below aerobic threshold. Um, but outside of that narrow context, failure to fuel long runs essentially just causes your body to eat itself, to, to simplify all of these terms away. And the more the body does that, um, the the more it starts to rebel on the on the cellular level. And that that's not just about health, right? Like I think runners are easy to be like, well, I'm healthy, I'll be fine. Um, but it's about adaptation too. So, you know, it's very easy to do hard workouts. What's very hard is to give your physio- physiology the context where it can adapt to hard workouts so that they're not hard in the future. Um, and, and the best way to do that is to focus on fueling runs. Um, so yeah, I mean, would you, do you want me to talk about like, what that might look like for an athlete or do you, do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah. I mean, maybe a, just a quick example. I mean, is this like take two gels during your 16 mile long run or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, not more complicated at all. So it's highly individual dependent, but the gut, it does adapt too. There's a, a way beyond, you know, the, the hour we have, but, um, you know, as you feel more, the body gets better at processing and using fuel. So if you think you're bad at it, just do it more often. And I promise it'll get better. Um, and there's a lot of physiology there. That's really interesting, but, um, we like, you know, 200 calories an hour minimum. So a gel every 30 minutes, um, you can start a little later, you know, 45 minutes an hour. And this is talking about runs over 75 or 90 minutes, um, to really emphasize. So 200, 300 calories an hour, um, and you know what you might find is that all of a sudden you're looking back six weeks later and it's like, I've gotten way faster from the same amount of work. And the reason is that the body needs that to adapt. If you're not giving it what it needs during the runs, it's not going to suddenly be like after the run finishes and you have a burger or whatever, be like, good, I'm good now. I can now adapt to that stimulus because during that long run, it's been chewing itself up. Um, and so, yeah, I think the simplest place to start for athletes might be, a gel at 45 minutes and every half hour after, um, you might, you can increase that amount of time if that's too much for you at first. Um, or if you're really efficient, even add one every 20 minutes or so. But, um, you know, the the basic theory here is like, I think a lot of athletes shy away from this one because they're like, Oh, you know, I can do without it. And two, because they're worried perhaps on some level about like, you know, all the body image and and eating things that are in the running community. But for for those people, I really emphasize this increases your metabolic rate. You're just going to get stronger um, and faster if you do it. So, um, you know, there's, there's just so many reasons, reasons to go for it and to try different fuels too. Um, I'm a huge fan of spring energy, but if you like goo or any other gel or real food, like any, anything works. Yeah. And David, I so appreciate this because my thinking on this topic has evolved greatly over the last, I'd say 10 or 15 years where, you know, I used to go out and run 20 miles and say, I don't need any fuel and I'd finish feeling fine. And then, you know, I would like to joke around that I'd focus the rest of the day on eating. But (laughs) now that I'm a little bit older and hopefully a little bit wiser, the way I think about this now is that what you're effectively doing is just creating the environment in which those adaptations can best happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, can you go and take a test 
in a really hot room with sounds coming in through the windows and it's kind of distracting, sure, you can finish the test. You just might not do as well. Whereas if you create an environment that is easier for you to take that test, it's just going to be much more effective for you. And that's exactly what we're doing with fueling. We're creating that nurturing environment for all those beneficial adaptations to occur. Because if if we're making it harder on ourselves, then we are making it harder for ourselves to adapt. And that's literally the opposite of what we want from our training. So to me, it just makes a lot of sense. But I've, I've had to evolve over the years on this. Oh yeah. And I think that's so common. I mean, I, you know, I was personally the same way before Megan, who's, you know, a doctor and researches in this field has like been so vehement about it. Um, and seeing the data, like not just the studies, the studies are, are easy, but like we have a lot of pro athletes we coach and what we'll see is the ones that adapt long-term we're talking year over year cycles are pretty good with this stuff. And when we've seen stress fractures, it almost always has been like failure and fueling long runs, right? And so maybe there's confounding variables there, but, um, you know, and, and then perhaps for like the extreme skeptics, like this has a direct hormonal uh, responses in the body. So that looks like menstrual cycle in women, but also for women and men, it means sex drive and sexual like health. And so, you know, if you're a runner that has thoughts about that stuff, really start to think about the fueling elements, because this isn't just about running. This is about your whole life and the context with which, you know, your genetic code, your background, your perspective on the world, like combines with your overall health to interact like outside of running too. Now, come on, David, I only want to talk about running here and adaptations, no general health talk whatsoever, please. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I feel, I realize like I always, um, I always bring up the, the sex topic because I'm, whenever I'm talking about fueling, because I'm like, I know some people are just such extreme skeptics on this topic that it might not be worth it, but I think that pricks at least the men's ears up. Um, and then hopefully the menstrual cycle talk. Uh, does for women too. But, you know, the, the preface being, or the background being like, if you do struggle with like irregular menstrual cycle or sex drive or sexual health or anything like that, it's not necessarily your fault or anything that you've done. Like a lot of different things can cause that. So there's my, my disclaimer, you are loved no matter what. And, but let's try to control the controllables. I love that. And, and I love how you're selling fueling as this is going to help your sex life because sex does sell. And, and that- <laughs> I, I try to sell everything like that. I'm like, if you listen to my podcast, that might help your sex life, perhaps. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I've never heard of a podcast uh, being advertised like that. Listen to my podcast. It will improve your sex life. That should be our uh, tagline for whatever whatever joint venture we do in the future. It's like totally unrelated things. Um, I, think we, I think we have a million dollar idea here. <laughs> I think so. Whatever it is, we'll, we'll yeah. sell it the right way. Um, David, this, this was so much fun. Not only were we able to just geek out on some of the finer details of the long run, but I think we had some fun along the way. Is there anything that I missed that you wanted to talk about that you think we are doing a disservice to the topic if we don't address? Oh my gosh, no, you nailed it all. I'm sure I missed some stuff. Um, I mean, like the final message I'd just like to leave everyone with that that's listening is like, um, you know, to, understand that you're a unique individual and how you respond to each thing will be different. Um, but to be really open to paying attention to how you're responding and listening to your body rather than trying to mimic what another athlete, what might work for them. Um, so yeah, like as long as you're just in a place with good health and 
you know, you're mixing these long runs with the actual ability to run fast. So we didn't really get into that because that's outside of the scope, but you know, the ability to run quick strides and and overall just be the fastest version of yourself and healthiest and strongest, like you're going to reach your potential, um, rather than having to feel like you need to run yourself into the ground, um, to mimic something that you read about in like an article I wrote or, you know, Daniel's running formula or something like that. Wise words. David, thank you so much. This was awesome. And uh, I know this episode is going to be pretty popular uh, just because of your expertise and the way that you can explain things. So thank you so much for being here. So much appreciation for you, Jason. I love, freaking love your podcast, all your articles and everything else. And thanks to the audience for listening. Um, And, you know, you all are loved. And David, you recently started a podcast. Why don't you, why don't you talk a little bit about that? And because I want to, uh, if any of our listeners want to hear more from you, you have a, a new podcast that is quite popular. Oh my gosh. If they listen this long, I feel like they have outstanding endurance to begin with uh, for my voice. So uh, some work all play podcast where my wife, Megan, uh, who is these, a doctor and, and PhD and, and researches in this world. And I just talk about random things. So some work all play podcast and yeah, it's basically just a humor, humor driven look at running and other things. I love it. Well, David, thanks again. You're so awesome. Appreciate you. Woohoo. Hey, it's Jason here one more time before you pause the show. David provided such a wealth of information about long runs, but if you still have questions, I'm always here if you want to write me at support at strengthrunning.com. I've also written so much on the topic at Strength Running, so you can always just search long runs on the Strength Running site. You can also connect with David at swaprunning.com or follow him on Twitter at Mountain Roche. This episode is made possible by support from Gatorade Endurance. Use code STRENGTH20 for 20% off at GatoradeEndurance.com. Now, Gatorade reformulated this in 2017 to be even more effective. Gatorade Endurance Formula is a specialized sports drink. That means it has higher amounts of sodium and potassium to help sustain hydration, maintain proper fluid balance, and replace key electrolytes that you lose when you're running. Plus, it has no artificial sweeteners or flavors, and it has a lighter flavor designed for athletes training longer. I know the last thing I want when I'm two hours into a long run is a really strong flavor that might turn my stomach. Gatorade Endurance Formula also now offers a multi-carbohydrate blend to help you dial it in and maintain performance over much longer runs. Different carbs are utilized at different rates, so this advancement helps you both run longer and lower any risk of stomach distress because it won't be working so hard all at once. You can check out all their flavors, including caffeinated and non-caffeinated options, at GatoradeEndurance.com. And don't forget to use code STRENGTH20 for your 20% discount. Thanks for listening to the show, everyone. I hope you are well. Thank you all for the incredible reviews you have left. I'm so appreciative of that. And I will be in touch with you very soon.